Here's the thing, Charles. It's not a dream. If it's real. Welcome to Xavier's Dream Podcast. I'm your host, Rain Coleman. This podcast is a carefree black nerd examination of the newest dawn of X-Men. When listening to this podcast, live tweet and comment using the hashtags Xavier's Dream Pod and XDPod. I want to hear your input. I want to know what you're thinking. Also, if you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app and share the show on your social medias. Twitter's preferred. Instagram stories are great as well. Now, let's get into episode two. Powers of X, issue two, the last dream of Professor X. All right, y'all, so uh, House of X last week was a great, great installment. I enjoyed everything. Um, Like I said, Hickman is doing the damn thing. Now, we're dealing with a few ideas in Powers of X or Powers of Ten, one being generation and one being identity. So we're still dealing with time. But not necessarily time travel like we usually think of with the X-Men. Uh, the opening page we get uh, X to the power of zero, which is the X-Men year one. That is the dream. X to the power of one. The X-Men year 10, the world. The X to the power of two. The X-Men year 100, the war. And we have X to the power of three. The X-Men Year 1000, that is Ascension. Hickman seems to be rewriting the history. Well, I wouldn't even say rewriting the history. Mm, well, yes, I would. This, okay, I'm going to say this much. There's a lot going on in Powers of X. If you thought House of X was good and dense, Powers of X is given the same times a thousand. So we got the different powers out of the way. I'm hoping I said that right. (laughs) If I didn't, y'all let me know. So after the four different kind of generations or different uh, iterations through time, we get the opening on X uh, zero or X to the power of zero, which is year one. And this, I'm assuming is set back in year one of the the first inkling of thoughts of X-Men. So we get... Xavier walking around a fair, which looks, I'm assuming, somewhere over in Europe. Um, And it's a really nice collection of scenes. It's panels of him walking through, smiling, wearing his uh, three-piece suit like he always does. And he settles on a bench. And again, this, this book seems very cinematic. This is, for all intents and purposes, the cold open of the movie. Um, So we get him sitting there admiring the birds in the sky when the woman comes over and says, good afternoon. And he says, and the same to you. Are you enjoying the fair? Which I can't do a British accent. I'm not even going to butcher it. But uh, he and this woman are kind of having a back and forth. A little bit about the weather, a little bit about the fair. But the conversation starts to, it seems a bit ominous I'll say for lack of a better term <clears throat> now with with that with what I just said and then thinking about Hickman rewriting uh, X-Men history and lore we 
we eventually find out that this is Maura McTaggart. But the way that they're handling these characters makes me not really concerned, but I can't rely on my past X-Men knowledge to say, oh, okay, this is this or this is that, if that makes any sense. So they're talking and they're sitting on a bench together. It's like, oh, are you enjoying the fair? You're like, oh, I am. And this is where things start to, my eye starts to raise a little bit. Where Charles says, um, uh, well, no, actually, more. she started off and she said, you know, um, it seems like the kind of thing I should enjoy. And yet, I look around at all these things, people, and know it's just for show for those who need one. A distraction from what's really going on, if you will. So after that, a few panels pass, and Xavier's response to her, because she asks to enjoy the fair, is, I am. It seems like the kind of thing I should not enjoy. And yet, a little parting of the clouds, a little shining of the sun, and suddenly everything seems right with the world. So this pleasant, like, back and forth they're having, it feels like, it doesn't feel like either one of them are in immediate danger, but it does feel like, what is... It's raising some questions, I'll say that much. So Mora goes on, or the lady, the mysterious lady, before we realize who she is, goes on um, and she says something to the effect of her enjoying the fair and walking through. And Well, I'll say verbatim, this is what she says. In my case, I was just walking through the fair, past the caged beasts and the games of chance past the fortune teller selling his wares. And then we have these three cards, they're like tarot cards. And this is still her narrating, but we get, <clears throat> see, the magician, the metal metamorph, the great sword and the girl with one foot in two worlds, the magician. See the tower, the axis, the pillar of collapse, the rebirth and monolith of ascension, the tower. See the devil, the red god, and the lost cardinal of the religion. Oh, excuse me, of the last religion, the devil. Now with this, I'm going to take a brief moment to go back and address the cover. The cover of Powers of X, issue one, has a lot going on. It looks kind of like a movie poster. We have um, a woman with the soul sword that Iliana, I said Iliana, Iliana has. Um, she also has like Colossus type skin. Uh, she doesn't look like she has a race uh, just because her skin is metal. Um, there's a Nightcrawler appearing person who has his same uniform but red fur instead of blue. We have a few bald people who look like they could be maybe Professor X or Cassandra Nova clones or relatives. There's a woman in what looks like the... If you guys remember Rogue's uniform from when the x-men were out in space and they were with that guy named joseph who was like a clone of magneto this was like back in the i think early 2000s it looks like that and then there's this big metal guy i say all this to say that the people on the cover of the book are also who mora is referring to in these cards now when you're looking at these tarot cards uh clearly this is some type of foreshadowing and then she finishes up with <clears throat> Then, at the far end of the fair, I saw you sitting here, and I thought to myself, there he is, what I've been looking for, the strong man. So, a few things with this. Referring to Xavier as the strong man after, like, listing out all of these 
supernatural elements that are all happening or this conversation is happening in year one before we get the full history of the X-Men, before the world is privy to, I, I don't want to say mutants, but the severity of the mutant population and, and what it is that they can do, you get this woman referring to Xavier as the strong man when... I would imagine your mind would immediately go to physical strength, which much like Xavier's did. He says, you know, I'm not really that strong. And she's saying, well, no, uh, you know, you are. You know saying? Like, I'm, you know, I'm not crazy. I do believe that you are very strong. And they're smiling. You don't know if it's a flirting thing. But what we settle on is that this person knows Xavier. And she says to him, well, here's the thing, Charles. It's not a dream if it's real and this is referring to him smiling because he's having a a most wonderful dream of a better world and his place in it um turn a page and there are a few panels of him confused like do i know you do we know each other she's like oh yes we do we go back quite a ways he asks who she is and she says to him why don't you read my mind charles read my mind and see so a few, th a few other things that I got from this beginning. One, either we are rewriting the history of the X-Men or we are not. And we are, I don't want to say a different timeline or dimension, but there's something going on with time travel that, as far as I know, maybe has him not knowing who she is. And I only say this is more McTaggart because the quote at the very beginning of the book is... Here's the thing, Charles. It's not a dream if it's real. And they have that listed as Maura McTaggart. Though this woman never gives her name, she says the very same line. So he looks into her mind, and then the screen goes black. And that's it. That's the code open. Okay, so uh, getting to the creative team. We have, as we did last week, <laughs> Jonathan Hickman, the writer, R.B. Silva, the artist, R.B. Silva, and... Adrino, Adrino, I'm butchering this name, my apologies, they're both the inkers, Marte Garcia, the color artist, the VCs Clayton Kyles is the letterer, Tom Muller is the design, RB Silva and Marte Garcia as the cover artist, so with Powers of X, this is issue one, the last stream of Professor Xavier. Now, the reading order for these books are as follows and it's listed in the back of the first issue and the second i'm going to imagine every other issue as well but it's house of x1 powers of x2 as excuse me house of x1 powers of x1 house of x2 powers of x2 and so forth till we get to powers of x6 that being said we're going to imagine this is a direct continuation of the end of house of x issue one so then we travel, we time travel to the X-Men year 10, which is X to the power of one in Krakoa, where Mystique and Toad come through a portal. I'm assuming it's immediately after they uh, escape the Fantastic Four in House of X number one. Um, if you don't remember that, please go back and revisit the Xavier's Dream podcast episode one. Um, Mystique tells Toad to go and do your thing. She pulls out the flash drive walks over to the house of m which is i'm assuming magneto's reign in the krakoan nation uh walks through these very ornate doors 
where he is there and he is kind of on cloud nine you can see that magneto is in his element and it makes sense you're in this perfect mutant utopia of sorts where everything is as it should be where we're not hunted we're not trying to be uh, no one's trying to kill us we're fine so everything that xavier and magneto have both been working towards since the 60s seems to be realized in this book so um you know i'm asking you the question listeners is this xavier's dream fulfilled or is this his dream deferred or what is this <laughs> um so yes so Xavier, excuse me, Magneto is talking to Mystique and they're discussing uh, how the mission went. She talks about Sabretooth and how he made it hard for them, but yes, she does have what they were looking for, which is this flash drive. And she tells him, like, I got it, but I have demands. And then in walks, or in appears, rather, Xavier, who we know from House of X. Xavier with the big cerebral type helmet on his head. And he's saying to her, which I like the duality in this book, like how we're taking some of the same uh, phrasings or some of the same conversations and, and flipping them to kind of either mean two different things or to respond to one another. Much like Xavier and the lady, i.e. more Tagger in the beginning of the book with this, oh, you know, I should be having a better time or I am having a better time. Here we get Xavier... After Mystique says she has demands, he says, um, is helping your fellow mutant not reward enough for Raven Darkholm? And she says, no, it isn't. I need more. So with this, what I like is, though we have this great, vast country that is for mutants, and it is great and better in the sense that we're not being hunted by humans anymore, we're not being discriminated against, but there are still tons of personalities and different agendas within the mutant community that has not been erased simply because we are now all living in the same space without the threat of humanity trying to kill us. I like that. Um, Mystique as this, I don't even want to say villain character, but as this questionable character, I don't know how this is going to play out. I wonder how much of her history is still intact. Like is Rogue still her daughter? Is Nightcrawler still her son? Uh, has her and uh, Wolverine's kid, I forget his name, is he still around? But we'll see. So uh, Xavier reads her mind and is like, okay, yeah, I see. That's cool. Uh, you have your demands, but we will have some as well. And, you know, he takes the little flash drive, whatnot. And <laughs> Mystique's response is, okay, you have demands. So is helping your fellow mutant not reward enough for the great child's Xavier? And this is the thing that Xavier says that really kind of blew my mind. Um, and I'm hoping for moments like this in every single issue because I got that with the last issue. Um, there were a few moments, but this one where he says, We're building a better world, a better mutant world, Mystique. And everyone who would live in it owes something. So again, though this is this amazing great magnificent place for mutants to be left alone and to well left to their own devices we are still getting these terrifying um we're, we're still getting people in power who may be coming to um demand certain things from you um i have to admit reading through this i had to read through it a few times because a lot of this was over my freaking 
head. And it's not that it was hard to read, but it's so much to to parse through that. I, Hickman, okay. <laughs> when I read through this book the second time, I stumbled upon this tweet where the person says something to the effect of, I guess Hickman forgot we were all dumb when he wrote Powers of X. And that was so accurate. Like, I don't, of course, believe that everyone is dumb, but I thought it was funny because he, the person had a point. Hickman is writing a story that, and I'm just speaking for myself, and if you understand everything and, and, and I'm looking too deep into it or not deep enough, let me know. Use that hashtag, Xavier's Dream Pod or XDPod. But I read through it. And I was like, I don't understand. Like, I see what is going on on the page in front of me, but I don't think I fully grasp what is going on. And for us to know that we're getting six issues of each House of X and Powers of X, we're going to get us a 12-issue run that at the end, I'm hoping I feel completely satisfied with. Um, even if I don't like the ending, I'm hoping that the ending makes sense and it feels like, Oh, I don't like this, but oh, this makes sense. Um, and with the larger than life elements that he's addressing just in the first issue and then these first two, I don't have any um, doubt that I'm going to enjoy the complete run. But again, <laughs> I may have to read through these issues two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times because some stuff I'm just, I just. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know, guys, if you've had, if, if this second issue seemed very heavy to you, if it was uh, hard to decipher, if it was easy, if you just like, look, I'm going to go with the flow and whatever happens, happens. <laughs> now, let's take a hard left. Um, I want to discuss Nathaniel Essex. Uh, you may know him as Mr. Sinister. Now, uh, Mr. Sinister was born as Nathaniel Essex in, a, in Victorian London, excuse me, he became a biologist that was back in 1859. Um, he's written as a contemporary of Charles Darwin. Now, Mr. Sinister had became obsessed with Darwin's theories. Um, however, he believed that his peers were too shackled by too many moral constraints and that their research should be beyond mor morality. Excuse me. Now, we may know him, for those of you who watched the uh X-Men 92 cartoon and for those of you who of course been reading the books now he is a powerful mutant who is uh, obsessed with genetics obsessed with certain mutant lines like the Summers Grey uh, Summers bloodline now his powers and abilities are he is a genetically altered human with the superhuman physical and mental abilities uh, he is telepathic and able to manipulate the minds of others in various ways. He is capable of energy projection through telekinesis, using genetic material from the mutant courier. Uh, Mr. Sinister gained complete control of his body at the cellular level, allowing him to shapeshift, regenerate, and be virtually immune to injuries. Um, he has a prolonged lifespan. Again, I said 18-something or other is where he was born. Um, he also has exhibited the ability to teleport. Um, let's see what else. He's a scientific genius with expertise in the fields of biology, genetics, cloning, physics, and engineering. Uh, the character is a master manipulator and planner. Again, master manipulator and planner. 
keep that in the back of your heads, folks. Now, he has decades of genetic research at his command, and he does go through great, great lengths to pursue his power, um, also to preserve, excuse me, to preserve his power as well. He goes through these elaborate technological means um, as uh, kind of conditioning children to be his host, and just in case he ever does die in the future. Um, let's see, it was noted by Sebastian Shaw that the later discovery of the cloning technology would make such a uh, conditioning process kind of pointless because you would be able to clone yourself. But all that being said, know that Sinister is, he's something else. He's, he's a bad guy. Now with Sinister in mind, there comes the Sinister line, which is a mutant breeding program. When population level mutants reached a crisis point and the constant evasion relocation confrontation cycle made systemic mutant propaganda impossible. The remaining mutant leadership endorsed approved the creation of the sinister breeding pits of Mars. Under the expert hand of chief mutant geneticist Mr. Sinister, this strategy mirrored the Earth-based Sentinel Hound program. But instead of focusing on the interbreeding of mutants with powers that lent themselves to detection, pursuit and deception. The sinister strategy focused on mutants with power sets that had more aggressive, militaristic traits. Please note, these lost years of mutant leadership followed the almost universal death or disappearance of senior leaders, and preceding the fall of Krakoa and Mars. Many believed rampant rumors that the lost years were not accidental but purposeful. See Betrayal. The sinister breeding pits of Mars. Ooh, boy, I tell you, again, a lot going on. Uh, now, really quickly, going forward, I'm going to ask that you guys email me um, if you want your thoughts to be featured on the show. So, send me like a voice memo or something. Uh, let the subject line be Xavier's Dream. Um, and so, and then include what episode you want to refer to. Because not only do I want to have this conversation on social media, if you have any thoughts you want to verbalize that you don't want to just be typing onto your keyboard or your phone, send them to me so I'll put them on the show. I do want to see that we're uh, all interacting here. Give everyone a chance to speak their piece. Because uh, I look at excuse me, Xavier's Dream Podcast as a way for me to get back into the mutants and the X-Men and to see if I can reclaim that love that I once had for them. Additionally, I would love to have that same thing with you all. Walk down this this road of discovery with me and let your thoughts be heard like i'm i'm down for that so if you feel so inclined email me at carefreeblacknerd at gmail.com use that subject line xavier's dream or xavier's dream podcast something to that effect and let me know in your voice memo what your feelings are be it about the episode about something i said about the book itself maybe something i didn't say it doesn't matter if we get down to episode 7 and you have something you want to address from episode 1. That's fine as well. I just want to make sure that this is a conversation and we're all interacting with one another. Hopefully create some sort of community here. Now, okay, so we're moving on to the human-machine-mutant-war. Now, for this, we are at X to the power of 1, and this is the X-Men year 100. Now, sometime in the future, from our present day, the mutants established this community on Mars, which isn't that surprising because, again, if you look back 
um, and read through House of X uh, episode one, excuse me, House of X issue one, you'll see that the Krakoan flower was being planted in different places around the world, Mars being included. With that, we know that we have these different gateways that can have you travel from here to there. So I assume just by those first few panels that there were going to be community spaces in all of these different places where the Krakoan flowers were being planted. Um, so again, the mutants get them a little community on Mars. And we know that some of the, at some point, the senior leaders, quote unquote, of the, you know, mutant, mutant population, they die or disappear. What I'm interested in knowing is who are these senior leaders? Now we did get a classification of Omega level mutants. I'm wondering, are they the senior leaders or are they just the most valuable mutant resource? which we realized again in the last issue. Are these mutant leaders just Charles and Eric? Is it Magneto and Professor X? Like who else in this new world or this new dawn of X-Men that we're living in now that we're two issues into, who were those mutant leaders? I'm, I'm very interested to know. And actually let me know what you guys think. Give me a list. Who you think are maybe four or five of the mutant leaders, because we haven't found out yet at the time of this recording. So tweet me, uh, Xavier's Dream Pod or XD Pod, and let me know who do you think these leaders are. So, like I said, at some point, they pretty much die or disappear. Now, during that time, uh, the leaders who were kind of around and, and left created these breeding pits that were run by Mr. Sinister. So again, you guys know how Sinister is. This uh, He is... He is a mutant, but like we say in the black community, all skin folk and kin folk, and just because Mr. Sinister is a mutant does not mean he's down for the mutant cause. And that's very interesting. Again, like I said, there are there's this utopia for us as mutant individuals, but everybody still has their own different agendas. And I love that I'm still kind of out of sorts when it comes to Powers of X issue one, but that's only because they're not telling a story that House of X told. That was simple to follow. It was a good heavy story, but this is going through generations and is dealing with different identities in a way that it has me anxious because I want to know how does this tie into the larger universe? How do we get to this point? Why are we jumping so far ahead in the future? What significance does that have on us in the present time in House of X? That being said, I'm, I'm happy to enjoy the ride. You guys let me know if you have any theories as well, be it through a voice memo or email to me, or if it's through the uh, social medias, through Twitter, in the comments or whatnot. Let me know. Now, Mr. Sinister, of course, uh, has this hound sentinel program. So again, we're dealing with hounds, something that was created back in the story arc Days of Future Past, the famous X-Men story arc. So I'm going to stop right there. Again, though we're rewriting, or Hickman rather, is rewriting hundreds of years of mutant and X-Men history, you're still holding on to elements that makes it feel like it's grounded in the regular 616. That being said, the hound program has been around for a very long time. So if you were going to eliminate everything, you would just create your own new program. But with him including the Hound and pairing it up with this Sentinel program, yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm trying to say I'm, I'm excited at what this means going forward. 
Uh, what does this mean about the past, i.e. the comics that we in the real world have been reading for the last decade or so? What does that mean for those people? Uh, when you think of the Howland program, I immediately think of Rachel, uh, Scott and Jean's Days of Future Plans timeline daughter, who also was a host for the Phoenix Force. So... I have all these ideas and thoughts floating around in my head. Some I'm able to verbalize, some not so well. But as you can see, I'm, I'm trying to make it through the mess because this is really a good story. Now, we, um, we're we going to get some more <clears throat> input on, on Sinister going forward. But we open up where I'm assuming we're on Mars. You guys help me out and let me know what you think. I'm assuming we're on Mars because we know about the human mutant machine war. But one thing that this issue is not doing is giving us exact locations. When it gets to the very end, the last few pages of the book, I think that may be why, so keep that in the back of your head. But that never says explicitly X me, um, X to the power of zero, uh, year one, England. Uh, X to the power of one, uh, X-Men year 100 Mars they don't do that so I'm just going to assume that we are on Mars so we open up with this guy who kind of looks like Elixir the golden skin dude and this is the person that's on the cover of the book as well and he uh, he says you know <laughs> there was a dream our dreams are the same while you slept the world changed now that that's a quote from the issue one of House of X. So again, Hickman is doing, I, well, I feel an amazing job. So we get these, what looks like maybe human-machine hybrid persons fighting alongside these newer sentinels or just robotic persons. And it's one, it's a, it's a, a, a female or a, a woman esque human and then this big robot and they're discussing how this person this golden skin person is dying he's dead and about uh uh are, is there something salvageable can we you know um uh can we get anything from that person's mind um or is this person more on the human spectrum which Man, one thing I feel like hasn't really has been addressed probably, but not that I can recall to this magnitude. I think Age of Apocalypse is probably the closest where you have the humans in between this war between the mutants and the Sentinels or the mutants in this big government agency. And you really get a sense of the humans, though bigoted as a whole or as a certain parts of the population, don't get represented um, that whale and I'm hoping you're following me here but I what I'm saying is that you get the superpowered fantastical mutants you get the sentinels and the people are trying to kill them who have these uh, mutant tracking technology and they're these big giant robots capable of so much power and in the middle you have these humans who don't have immense power they are just humans and I don't know I don't know what I'm trying to say, but there's something about that triangle, trifecta, love triangle, whatever, that when we get to year 100 and you have people who are being altered, kind of in the way that Mr. Sinister was, um, is it like humanity's reaction to 
the mutant population and this war between themselves and the mutants that you now enhance yourself in ways that make you less human and kind of make you more like the thing you were trying to kill in the first place, which was mutants. So if you followed all that, let me know. <laughs> I know I was just talking and talking and talking, but I, I feel like I got somewhere. If not, let me know and I'd, uh, I'd, I'd go back and address it and try to clear it up for you. Now, these people, like I said, who are kind of modified to be these human robot hybrids are working for a larger master. And we get to that eventually. But in this battle, we get the golden skin guy and then we get Rasputin and we get Cardinal. Now, going back to the code open of this issue where Maura Metagra was talking about walking through the fair and the different people she saw. So the magician being Rasputin and the devil being uh, uh, Cardinal, excuse me. So Rasputin is the woman on the cover of the book who I assumed was a descendant of uh, Peter Rasputin, a.k.a. Colossus, and Catherine Kitty Pry, a.k.a. Shadowcat who maybe took the soul blade from Iyanla I, I, <laughs> Rasputin magic why can I not get her name right because she has the soul sword the one the big demonic sword that uh that Miss Rasputin had so I just assumed this was a a, a hundred year in the future descendant of these people and that does not seem to be the case so this 100 years is what had me most confused in this book and this is where I'm asking for you guys the listeners to help me out with examining this break some stuff down for me if you can uh, be it through Twitter or like I said send me a voice memo and we'll add that to one of the upcoming episodes so there is a telepath who has a black brain she's the black brain telepath and this person seems to be the sibling the sister to Rasputin now Again, this is a gruesome scene where it's it's very classic X-Men scene where you are fighting Sentinels and you're using all your power and you're just trying to survive and get out of here. Well, I like that these two, and I'm going to say women, but I don't know the makeup, genetic makeup of these characters. So, though they present as women... They could be completely machine, completely made up, completely alien. I'm still unclear. So I'm going to say women going forward, but understand Rasputin and her telepathic black brain sister. I don't know how much of them is still human and how much of them is this machine, larger, whatever. So they are doing this sisterly thing where they're speaking tele telepathically, excuse me, and talking about we got it. We got to get her out of here. So they're looking to escape now all of this is happening so fast we have the red fur and haired nightcrawler kurt wagner descendant well what i thought was a descendant of his with the same uniform looks exactly the same but he's red and pretty much nothing comes from him he's a pacifist rasputin is like we got to get my sister out and he's like no we have to go now and Rasputin says, and this is telepathically, just because you were bred to be a coward doesn't make me one, Cardinal. If you want to run, then run. I won't be. And I like that. She's she's like, fuck this, bro. You can be a pacifist all day long, but 
The interesting thing is that if these people were bred for militaristic reasons, why breed a pacifist with mutant powers to begin with? What is the point? Um, sister, the black brain telepath is being tortured, pretty much. So, Cardinal, the Nightcrawler lookalike, says, I am planting the black seed of Krakoa. I will wait for you as long as I can before I close it on the other side. If you do not come through, then I will see you both when the world is made again. Which is like, bruh, you are in the middle of battle, pacifist or not, you have a weapon, you have mutant ability. Why are you even here taking up space if you're not here to help? And I felt Rasputin like, she shouldn't have to do all this. Like she should, But she does say to him, you know, will you pray for me? Which is, I mean, it says something. Um, and he gets to rambling on and he says, you know, of course, my faith is boundless. I pray for all living things. Well, she did say pray for her. She ain't talking about all living things. So first calm that down. Um, and she says, and that's your problem, priest. Jumps up with this big ass sword going at these motherfuckers. So then she says, you've forgotten the machines have no souls. And that the humans lost theirs long time ago. And we get this like battle scene where she is going through and whooping ass trying to get her sister. Um, and they're, they're yelling at each other. And it feels very childlike. Because what they say is, and this is the exchange between Rasputin and her black brain sister. And I'm saying black brain and I'll explain that um, for in a bit. But she says, hello little sister. Sister says, I want to go home. She said, then let's do that. I've gotten her priest. How soon into the gate is fully grown? So this little exchange, this small panel box, really though these are two grown, powerful women, they seem to be in this like very childlike state. Like my sister is in trouble. I need to get to her. And my big sister is coming to save me. I need help. While they're waiting for the priest, the cardinal to open this uh, um, gateway, excuse me, he says, well, it's taking too long. Can you hold them off? So there, the way Krakoa is working, Krakoa is a plant. Krakoa is earth. So it's like slowly what I imagine, because of course it's a panel, not a movie, is slowly emerging to that circle gateway. While doing that, Rasputin says, I can do that. I was made for this. Her skin turns into steel, organic steel, like Kalosh's. She's deflecting bullets. The... Um, I don't even know, the machine, the man machines are upset. Nothing phases her, metal or plasma. They're calling in the big guns. The gate is open. Rasputin is like, okay, we're leaving now, sister. No sooner does she say that, this big, gigantic sentinel hand comes right down on top of her, which kind of smushes her a bit, but knocks her sister away from her. She's fighting to get free of the hand. While she's doing that, the sentinel is attacking her. She creates a force field. And then the mutant-human hybrids snatch up her sister. It was like, damn, all of this? And you didn't even get your sister? So while she's fighting Rasputin, you can see the fear and stress in her face. The anger. She pull out her sword, going at it. The artwork is freaking phenomenal. The colors, the line work, all that. So the sister's like, look, there's no choice now, sister. Leave me behind and escape. Rasputin says... <laughs> I will die here before I do. Like, bruh, this is, like, I want, I'm very excited because we're getting this story. It's an interesting story. We're still figuring it out. But thinking that 
in a few years from now when we do get mutants in the MCU, are we going to get things on this scale? I mentioned last episode that I don't think we we I don't think Marvel is going to go the route of the classic X-Men stories from the past because why would you? Dark Phoenix has been tried three different times over at Fox. There's been mishandling of characters, so it only makes sense that going forward in the MCU when you introduce the mutants, you give them more closely related to this source material like House of X, Powers of X, and the stories that will come after because of course by the time the mutants show up in the MCU we will have had years worth of these comics already out in trays and omnibuses and whatnot or omnibuy, omnibus, omnibuy. It so it just it would make sense that you would start here and maybe pull an element or two from the older classic stories that weren't touched but bruh I <laughs> To see if I can see this scene on screen, this powerful woman who is acting in a way where you would normally see a Superman, a Wolverine, a Colossus, a male character and whooping ass and then her trying to save her sister and it isn't a man trying to save his lover, his his woman lover, his damsel in distress. These are two sisters working hard at getting some shit done. Um... They kind of remind me of Gamora and Nebula from the MCU, but with a functional relationship. And I don't know if that was intentional. And they even kind of look like Rasputin gives a more Gamora feel. And her black brain telepath sister looks a lot like Nebula from the MCU. So, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm Hickman is, is doing his thing. And I'm, man, it's a lot. Come here, uh. The first generation of sinister mutants were uniformly designed to be divergent copies of a singular DNA source with a pure, uncompromised X gene. Commonly referred to as fodder inside the breeding pits, these mutant soldiers were trained in the Martian underground until they reached the age of 16, at which time they traveled to Krakoa to defend the mutant nation-state until it fell 30 years later. The second and third generations of sinister mutants were referred to as Chimera class, the second Chimera generation produced mutants that had DNA composed of two separate X genes, resulting in a mutant with the mostly predictable combined power set of the source mutants. The third Chimera generation produced mutants with an amalgamated DNA featuring up to five X genes. Outside of a predictable failure rate. C. Outliers. This third generation of Chimeras was universally successful against the man-machine supremacy, and many believed that his would be the turning point in the war. However, the fourth generation of sinister mutants suffered a systemic failure. The entire batch of these Omega-based Chimera mutants was produced with a corrupted hive mind that was only discovered to be defective after they had destroyed 40% of the remaining mutant population and caused the fall of Krakoa. They eventually committed mass suicide, collapsing Mars, the Sentinel pits and themselves into a self-singularity. So we see that there is a Chimera or Chimera. We see that Rasputin is a Chimera. So we have a sample of her DNA broken down in the book. And there's a few things that I'm not entirely sure of all of them, but I'm going to tell you what I do know. <laughs> so we have parts of Quentin Choir, which is telepathy, which... Her level of telepathy is at 10. We have part of Rasputin, uh, which is Colossus, which is the uh, Metamorph. That level is at 6. We have someone named Bane. 
that person I am unaware of. So if you guys know, please use that hashtag, Xavier's Dream Pod or XD Pod, and let me know. But his powers, which I believe is the force field, is at a five, a level five. We also have her Kitty Pride gene, which is intangibility, which is at level four. And she also has some Laura Kenny DNA, which has her healing factor at a four as well. So I did pose the question before, who do you guys think are the mutant leaders that disappeared in this timeline? And I'm wondering if, if this graph maybe gives us some insight or if it's just you've taken Omega level mutants or select mutant DNA that you prefer and created these different people. So again, um, Rasputin, this, the way they classify her, it says her name is Rasputin 4. And again, her telepathy is at a five, intangibility is at a two, um, uh, uh, metamorph, excuse me, is at six, healing is at two, and her force field is at three. So I'm still trying to figure out how to read this graph. Maybe I'll put this, I don't know, maybe on Twitter with a link to the episode, and you guys let me know if you come up with something different or if we think this means anything other than what I said. Classification, outliers, like any experiment, Sinister's breeding program would produce results that fell outside of the expected range. A failure rate. Every generation of mutant chimeras had outliers, but the expectation was that these failures would be controllable at worst and acceptable at best. Here are the failure rates per generation. Generation 1, 00.3%. Generation 2, 01.2%. Generation 3, 09.4%. Generation 4, 62.3%. Generation 3 had a 10% failure rate where, in spite of their being bred for war, these mutants developed passive, peacetime power sets. Almost all these outlier mutants also had personality profiles that lent themselves to pacifism and an obsession with creation myths. They also rejected the idea of personal identities and refused individual names. These variants were all called Cardinal. Classification, Betrayal, the fall of Krakoa and destruction of the Martian breeding pits was directly preceded by the betrayal of mutants by Mr. Sinister. Retrospectively, it is obvious that Mr. Sinister was playing a longer game of self-interest that superseded any formal association or alliance. And while the failings of the Generation 4 mutants were clearly a design flaw baked into their design, it is now believed that most of the random circumstances that led to the creation of Sinister's program were, in fact, orchestrated by him. Quote, the nature of that man, Sinister, reaches far beyond any hope of redemption. There can be no salvation for the devil himself. End quote. Sinister was publicly executed by the man-machine supremacy after defecting. Now remember the tower from the beginning of the book, <laughs> one of the tarot cards that the Mora McTaggart character saw? So we get there. We're at the tower of Nimrod, the lesser, the human machine monolith. Now before going any further, I just want to kind of touch on Nimrod a bit just because some of you may not be aware. Um, of course, it's a Marvel Comics character. He first appeared back in 85 um, in X-Men Volume 1, Issue 191, created by Chris Claremont and John Romita Jr. Now, he came from the Days of Future Past timeline, again, the timeline with the Hounds. Remember Rachel? Now, Nimrod is a powerful, 
virtually indestructible descendant of the robotic mutant hunting sentinels. His name is derived from the biblical figure described in Genesis as a mighty hunter. Now in this, he is affiliated with the Purifiers, the Sentinels, Project Nimrod, and the abilities are as follows. He has superhuman strength, durability, and regeneration, energy projection, computer interfacing, shape-shifting, and teleportation. Now with that groundwork being set, we move to the Tower of Nimrod, which looks exactly how it did on the tarot card from a hundred years uh, prior. So, uh, Omega is as he's referred to in this book. It appears as if your faith in humanity has paid off once again. Or, actually I think I had that incorrect. Omega may be the Sentinel type character from before who I think is the same uh, half robot Karina from issue one of House of X. I'm not 100% sure, but we're going to figure it out together. So these, the man mutants, or excuse me, the man, man machine pawns who were fighting Rasputin and Cardno in the uh, last scene are now bringing in the black brain telepath. So it, this one chick, she kind of reminds me of Polaris for nothing else but that she is a white woman with green hair. So I wonder if that's intentional or if she just has green hair. But I can't recall anybody in the Marvel Universe who's had green hair outside of Polaris. There may be some, but I can't recall. So what they're doing is they're turning over the Black Brain Telegraph to Nimrod and the, I guess this woman's name is Omega. Now, what they're saying is that there were other mutants that penetrated the, the area and that they got some of them got away. And they're noticing that it is, it is a hound. So in the midst of all of this confusion and conversation, pretty much Nimrod apologizes to the telepath. And this throws me off. So what happens is the lady, I'm going to just say her name is Omega until I'm proved otherwise. She says that they found a hound. She says it's interesting uh, from the Sin Canal. Sin Canal. I'm going to spell that just in case you guys have a different pronunciation. S-A-L-C-E-N, Salsin, Canel, K-H-E-N-N-I-L. So, I immediately thought kennel like dogs, hounds, like I'm sure there's some word association there. So, Nimrod stands up because he's in this big intergalactic science fiction as throne in his empty ass room. And he says... A hound, I see. Give me your eyes, mutant. I want to look at them when I say this. I am so sorry for what we did to you. In fact, I am embarrassed and ashamed at what we did in the name of both expediency and annihilation. We bred you not only to be a slave, but to betray your own people. How in a good and just world did higher functioning programs like ourselves believe that would ever be a good idea? And speaking personally, I find it encouraging that your little, excuse me, your litter failed us so miserably. Bad ideas should die a bad death. I find hope in that you should too. So, Rasputin Baby Sister is a hound. She's a black brain telepath. Who listens to everything Nimrod says, gives him two panels of a stink face, and she says, 
If it takes a thousand years, I swear we will endure and erase you from existence. So, <laughs> it's like everybody in this book got fight. So, Nimrod's like, alright, that's the spirit. I love that shit. Which was confusing for me because it seemed as if his apology was more or less maybe seeing if she would lower her guard or if he's like adapting to humans. I... I don't know. I'll just say this stuck out to me and it, it turned me, not didn't turn me off. It confused me because I didn't understand what he was getting at by apologizing to her. But I assume, again, he was trying to see if she, I mean, was going to give in or what. Um, so homegirl Omega pulls out this, can well, turns her arm into a cannon. She said, <laughs> she said, I have some bad news though. This will not be that day of days. Today, you will tell us what you were looking for if you found it, and most of all, why you wanted it. So, they're going back and forth, and homegirl, who I believe is Polaris, says, you know, we want to give her a bath, and they had said that before, and I'm like, what the hell is that? So, Nimrod <laughs> hits some lever, and this big green contraption comes up. They stab homegirl in the arm, knocks her out, throws her into this. It looks like a big vial or a vat. Um, think of uh, Mr. Freeze in Batman, his wife, one of those chambers his wife was suspended in, but green instead of blue. And huh, he says to her, I am so sorry for what I am about to do to you. You see, I've built something, a respiratory of sorts, a monument to understanding the mutant anomaly. But sometimes, innovation has a biological cost. And when you add that to your unwillingness to let us know the things we need to know, well, necessity narrows our more even options. Soon, all of these chambers will be full of your kind. Your bodies, and more importantly, your minds, will be submerged in fluid where you will be suspended and distilled down to nothing but data. Bruh. He plans on taking mutants, putting them in these vets, and siphoning off every single part of their being until they're a husk of their former selves, literally and figuratively. Like, that is some sick stuff. Uh, he says, this was curated by an AI of my own making, my very own brood. Unfortunately, for one of mine to flourish, many of yours must perish, including you. So as you fade away into nothingness, do try to find it in your heart to forgive me. What? Bro, what? Uh, homegirl ain't having that. She says, you think you... <laughs> you think you're threatening me is going to make me tell you what you want to know? I'm afraid not. I'll die for what I believe in. And then they proceed to turn on the machine and pretty much kill her. You can see her struggling. And then the next panel is just like, yeah, whatever they did to her stop the fight in her and she just floats there and it's a sad 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 panel the kennel sentinel mutant breeding camps the salcine kennel was built to be the pinnacle of the man machine ascendancy's breeding program to produce hounds hounds which were mutants bred in captivity to hunt other mutants were originally designed to present as a subspecies with dehumanizing affectations. These were meant to generate fear and sympathy in their intended targets. 
but these designs were quickly abandoned after several generations because, being broken and dependent, they were ineffective hunters of their own kind. However, modified versions of hounds, like the final ones bred in the Salcine Kennel, were created with unreadable black brains and conditioned for insurgence and duplicity. And while the few hounds who were successfully deployed proved to be lethally effective, the majority of them, as they were bred for betrayal, defected in support of their own kind and became some of the mutants' most effective warriors. The Salcine Kennel was destroyed 10 years ago, along with all biological and research material. So we pick right up where Cardinal and Rasputin have gone through the gateway, the Krakoan gateway. This motherfucker, he apologizing. I wish I was made of some other way, but I'm not. I'm just not capable of violence. If I could trade places with her, I would. You know that, right? Like, bruh, that's... So, even though I feel like Cardinal is shitty for that, I'm also kind of like of two different minds. Or three. He's shitty, yeah. But, one, why was he there? And with that being said, Rasputin, why would you take him along? So, it's kind of on you. But then, two, is he like one of the very few people we had available for this mission and it just worked out that it didn't work out so though i'm side eyeing cardinal i'm still kind of holding off or taking back some of my initial judgment because i'm not sure what this means for him or the story at large because i don't know what the numbers are like these chimeras the rasputin chimera like these are these defects in a smaller quantity or do they have a full hub of people who they are um who they are a, a community with like is there are there more of them that we're just not seeing so i'm i'm kind of holding off there now they walk through the cocoa gateway and uh we don't see who they're talking to but they walk into someone they're like uh we saw that there was only two of you in transit what happened Whew, okay, and so Rasputin's like, Percival's dead, Cyclobel's probably is too. Now these people that they're naming, I'm assuming is like that gold skin person who was like a descendant of Elixir, I assume. But the next page we get a full panel of what looks like Magneto in his full-on favorite child Polaris color green outfit. <laughs> so his original design, but in green like his daughter Polaris. We get a Wolverine in his uh, original brown and yellow, brown and goldish uh, outfit. But he looks like an older Wolverine, so I'm thinking like an old man Logan type. Because uh, he has the gray, gray hair on his face. Then we see what I'm seeing is Groot, but other people online was saying that that could be a manifestation of Krakoa. It could possibly be Groot. And there was someone else, and forgive me for not remembering who they said this could be. And then someone who looks like Zorn, but with this timeline and new and different things, I would say it could even be like an altered, I don't know, Doctor Strange type, but Doctor Strange also isn't a mutant. So I don't know who this is. We're going to figure it out eventually, I'm sure. But... These four folks standing tall and proud, um, and they're saying like, you know, that's too bad. Those folks were good soldiers. Uh, talking about Percival and Cyclobel, Cyclo, yeah, Cyclobel, um, 
And then the Wolverine says, you know, the question is, did they die for nothing or was it worth it? So Cardinal with his, y'all, I still don't know what I feel about Cardinal. He's like, yeah, we've got it, whatever. And Wolverine finishes up with, all right, and follow me, the old man's waiting. And when they say the old man's waiting, man, that could be anybody. So what I'm kind of thinking is that maybe these four are some of those uh, mutant leaders that were, that disappeared. But with this storytelling, I don't know for sure. So I'm not even going to bank on that. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I just know that we do have... Surviving mutants. Total mutant population under the man-machine supremacy. The current estimated number of surviving Homo sapiens superior is currently believed to be less than 10,000. The vast majority of these mutants are transplants or refugees no longer living on Earth or in their native solar system. Two main colonies, which make up the bulk of the refugees, exist in Shi'ar space. The first, Benevolence, is a converted transit station located on the fringe of Shi'ar space where it has long served as a buffer between the Empire and the wild space spawning grounds of brood breeding territory. The current number of mutants living on Benevolence is just under 8,000. The second mutant colony is located on the Shi'ar throne world of Shandilar. The less than 2,000 mutants who live here are, by treaty with the Empire, warrior stock for the Imperial Guard. Currently, six mutants serve as sub-guardians and 57 are of sub-guardians classification. It has long been whispered in imperial circles that Empress Sandra has always had ambitious plans to annex the soul system. And the mutant guardsmen are being cultivated to be sympathetic conquerors as an emollient for imperial rule. Inside the mutant community, it is hoped that should this come to pass, the surviving mutants can serve as seed stock for repopulation. So Cardinal and Rasputin entered into the gateway, the Krakoan gateway, and came out in Krakoa, but they were in the quote-unquote no-place hub. Now, this no-place hub, I'm thinking if we're following the rules of the story, well, we ain't got them all yet, but I'm thinking it's one of those tumorous locations in Krakoa where not even Krakoa is aware of. Remember back in episode one, House of X, issue one, how there were certain uh, plants that worked as pills for humans and as gateways for the mutants. So I'm thinking that's where we are now. Now with the surviving mutants, we have the soul mutants and all living mutants in the soul system, that's SOL, are currently citizens of Asteroid K. Now Asteroid K, after the death of the X-Hound Cyclobel and the ghost Percival, that population has gone down to eight. So I'm thinking that instead of Mars, they were actually on Asteroid K, which that makes much more sense, but I, I don't know, again, who knows? <laughs> so on in Benevolence, on the Shi'ar homeworld, we have the population at 7,942. That's the mutant population. On Chandelar, this is the Shi'ar homeworld as well. We have the population at 1,829. And on Asteroid K, it has gone down to a mere 8. And this Asteroid K is in the solar system, not on the Shi'ar homeworld. So, man, again, stuff is happening. <laughs> so, we move on to um, X to the power of 3, which is the X-Men year 1000. And we see the uh, container that housed the black brain telepath. And you can tell that she has been siphoned. Like, she looks like a decrepit 
But like she's been in embalming fluid or something. And someone says, uh, we are losing them. So we are now at the archive of Nimrod Greater the Mutant Library. Oh, let me say that again. <laughs> the archive of Nimrod the Greater the Mutant Library. So here, I'll assume just by the name, this is years later, and this is where the library that houses all of the information is is held. So someone is sitting on the floor, legs crossed, with the little robot flying around beside them, but with a helmet that looks kind of similar to Xavier's in the current timeline. Like it's it's a bit more sleek, and this person takes off their helmet. There are a blue skin, bald head, alien type. The same type that looks like the um, Area 51 alien <laughs> that everyone is going to go rescue, I guess, this summer. Um, and they say that there's too much machinery floating around inside of there. When they say inside of there, they're speaking about the black brain, black brain telepath. Um, and they're saying it's not enough soul to save it and copy it. Um, so this little machine is floating around, which... Again, I'm not even going to assume anything anymore. I'm taking that face value. So this person seems to be a librarian of sorts. Now, the robot blames itself for the librarian person not being able to copy the memories of the black brain telepath. They're saying that, you know, I, I simply wasn't built to maintain this type of energy. Um, and the little robot is named Nimrod. Now, I'm not sure if this is Nimrod proper who we saw uh, in the last uh, what thousand years or if this is a new incarnation of Nimrod but there's this walking and talking and again you see this vast humongous space well not space yeah space that these people are in I don't know what this if this is outer space if this is on a planet if this is asteroid K but the blue librarian says you know who could have known how pointless and useless that war would be Talking about the um, man-machine man mutant war. Um, who at the time would have seen the surprising end of the human-machine mutant war? So again, what is the end? Now I'm, I'm interested. How did that war end? And how do we end up here a thousand years from now? Um, so the Nimrod robot says, Homo sapiens, so good to be done with all that. What? Hold on, bro. So there's no more humans? Now are there Homo sapiens superiors? I don't know. So the librarian continues, are we done with them? Can we ever really be done with the past? After all, that's what a legacy is. Okay, and then we go on and we're getting close to the end here. And so you see the librarian on what looks like a balcony overlooking a very maybe technologically advanced space. It kind of reminds you of Wakanda, but there is in the middle of it this big golden dome with things textile patterns um, above that it looks like it's the tower from before but I'm not I can't confirm but then the librarian says and it's why we keep dinosaur bones around so as a reminder of what this world used to be like and to remember what we overcame so as the librarian is speaking we're getting closer and closer to the dome it is important to keep record of the great sins of history, even better to preserve a remnant. So they're getting closer and closer. So the dome is now, it's disappearing. It's disappearing for us, the reader, not for the people in this world, because we're getting, we're zooming in. 
um, he continues something to point at. Now we're inside the dome and it looks natural. There's birds, there's trees, there's light. It's like a forest. And he ends with, and hope to God they never have dominion again. Now this last panel, it, oh man, okay, the way they did this, I don't know who we're looking at. Remember in the first issue where Xavier greeted these two characters, male and female, who emerged from these pods, like the Matrix style? Well, these two characters could easily be those two who Xavier greeted to me, my X-Men, in issue one of House of X. Or this could very well be Rasputin and uh, Cardinal. Now, I don't think that's it. The way they colored it, the woman looks, they both look nude. But with the shadowing and everything, who knows what this is? So I'm thinking maybe the world that we exist in, in House of X in present day, is being is is being acted out within this dome and maybe the mutants don't even know about it like and then this blue skin librarian is that charles xavier man there's so much going on again a stellar issue i'll say this one was a bit harder to read um just as far as trying to understand and follow the story but it wasn't uh that difficult all in all, I really enjoyed the story. Um, Powers of X or Powers of Ten, as you will, is very, <laughs> is very something. Um, you see the Powers of X, um, Powers of Ten, we increase by intervals of ten. Um, X to the zero power, X to the first, second, and third. Um, I like it. It felt like a very grand science fiction-y image comic. And that's not a diss at all, because image comics puts out some very good indie work well, we call it indie they put out some very good stories um and again like i said that's not bad at all now i never really got into the science fiction space stories with the x-men it just was never my thing she are and all that like okay it's cool but i never really gravitated to those stories but this story does have me interested so i cannot wait for the payoff especially with all of the books that we have coming out in October that will be under the new Hickman verse, I guess um, we'll call it. <laughs> so, quick wrap up, wrap up, excuse me. Generational story, um, a story of identity and survival. Uh, there was, or was slash will be, a mutant human machine war. Uh, Mr. Sinister fucks with everyone, fucks them over as usual. And, um, Man, yeah. So let me know your favorite moments from this episode. Let me know your favorite moments from this issue. Um, what do you think about Powers of X issue one? Did you enjoy it? Was it confusing? Did you feel dumb? <laughs> like the tweet I mentioned at the top of the episode. Um, make sure when you are discussing these things, use that hashtag Xavier's Dream Pod and XDPod. Hit me up online so we can have this uh, conversation. Let's make this more interactive. Um, did you agree with any of my points? Did you disagree? Like, I want to hear it all. Um, any theories, anything you can confirm that maybe I was confused about? Um, I don't know, anything. Anything in issue one, let me know. So, please, uh, tweet me. Uh, use the hashtag Xavier's Dream Pod or XDPod. This podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, and BYNK Radio. Make sure that you subscribe, you know, and leave me a review. Let me know, you know, you like the show. I'm reviewing Xavier's Dream Podcast. Give me them five stars. Also, guys, again, if you will, 
send me a voice memo, a voice note, email it to me, carefreeblacknerd at gmail.com. Use the uh, hashtag Xavier's Dream or Xavier's Dream Podcast in the subject so I'll know exactly what this is for. And I'll put it on the next episode or whenever you send it out that next episode so we can have this be a conversation a bit more interactive than before. Uh, so follow me online, Carefree Blurred on Twitter. That's the most immediate way to get in touch with me. Carefree Black Nerd everywhere else. And um, until next time, guys, stay carefree, stay nerdy, stay geeky. And do not forget about the remnants of your past. Because, of course, we hope to God that they never have dominion again. (laughs) You've forgotten that machines have no soul. And that the humans lost theirs a long time ago. (laughs) 